Welcome everyone to the fourth wonder podcast. This is Libby Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to bring you this incredible author. Her name is Lacey Crawford, and she has just published a recent book, Notes on a Silencing. It just came out this month. This book has been featured in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, NPR, and she has won a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice Award. This memoir is eloquent and so beautifully told. There is graphic content in this podcast, so I warn you to put in earphones if you need to. She tells about the devastating account of a sexual assault she endured as a child in boarding school. But despite the graphic content, this book is almost majestically written and so powerful. So here we go with Lacey. Lacey, thank you so much for joining me. I am I'm so thrilled to have you here with me today and bring you to our to my listeners. I'm very grateful to be here and it's also wonderful to talk to you again for the first time in 30 years. I know it's really <laughs> incredible. Lacey and I were in high school together and here we are 30 years later. This is I am beyond excited about this 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 conversation. Uh, we're going to be talking about her her new book that's just been released this month, Notes on a Silencing. And I'm going to have her give us a, a quick, uh, just brief sort of summary of the book as we get started. I would like to, to say I... I could not put your book down. I read it in less than t- less than 24 hours. I stayed up into the wee hours of the night reading it and finishing it. It was so powerful. It brought me to tears um, on several occasions and has I can't stop thinking about it. And so um, I, I just I want to just tell you face to face how powerful I'm already tearing <laughs> up. This is ridiculous. It was powerful and beautiful. And um, I, I thank you for it. It is a gift. Thank you so much, Libby. Um, so my book is the chronicling of uh, my life following a sexual assault. So I want to say now for listeners that um, a big part of my coming to understand what had happened to me and being able to write about it and, and talk about it was um, letting go of a lot of the shame that surrounds what happened to me. And um, in part because of that, I'm quite specific and detailed about some of the things that I experienced. And that um, might be incredibly painful uh, to other survivors. And there are certainly times in my life when I've not been able to hear those stories. So if that's something that's going to trouble you today or ever, now is a, is a good time to switch to a different podcast. Otherwise, so um, so when I was 15 years old, I was sexually assaulted by two 18-year-old seniors at the boarding school that I attended in Concord, New Hampshire. I was about a thousand miles from home. My parents were in Chicago. I was a virgin. I was sober. Um, and the fact that I'm even telling you those things tells you that I'm already trying to prove that it wasn't my fault. Uh, and that is been one of the sort of clawing challenges of my life since the moment I was allowed to leave that boy's room is figuring out what had just happened and was it my fault. Uh, I stayed at my boarding school and tried not to tell anyone for a long time, um, but the boys bragged very much about what had, what had gone on because it was pretty good gossip for you know your average October. Um, and I contracted herpes very deep in my throat as a result of the assault. It was so deep that it was not visible on an ordinary medical exam. So um, I would routinely go to the infirmary because I couldn't eat and I was losing weight and I had a high fever and my throat hurt so much. And they eventually sent me to an outside physician who was able to diagnose what was wrong with me, but for whatever reason, they did not tell me or my family or my doctors at home in Chicago what I had, such that I remained ill uh, for the next five months, and I did my best to keep things together. I eventually told my mom over the phone what had happened. She flew me home, uh, and the pediatrician in Chicago was the one who diagnosed me properly and reported my assault to the state of New Hampshire, as was her obligation as a mandated reporter. Uh, by that point, the school had already sprung into action, though, and determined that they would do anything it took to get rid of the problem of my felonious statutory sexual assault. It was against the law in a lot of different ways because of our ages, because of what went on in, what went on in that room. So um, 
the police in New Hampshire wanted to press charges against the boys, and St. Paul's school said that if I did that, I would not be welcome to return for my senior year. Um, and they threatened to say a whole lot of other things about me if I was put on the witness stand. So my family and I stood down. Uh, I wanted to be an ordinary girl. I wanted to go back to high school. I didn't want those boys to take anything more from me than they already had. I tried for a long time to write about this uh, and failed um, in various ways. I failed in a lot of things in those years of my life in my 20s, putting together relationships, um, having courage to simply build a life, the ordinary things about finding a place to live and taking the first steps towards your career. And um, it wasn't until uh, 2017 when I had sort of got my act together and was married and had children, lived very far away from New Hampshire, very far away from Chicago for that matter, um, that the state of New Hampshire opened an investigation into St. Paul's School because there had been so many stories of sexual assault that had come forward. Many of them have risen to national prominence in the media. Uh, I joined that investigation very privately, only my husband knew. And somehow St. Paul's School found out that I was talking to the police. And when that happened, things started to move pretty quickly. The police got a hold of my student files, uh, which were that summer 25 years old. And in my file, they found documented evidence of how the school and the lawyers had worked out the plan to silence me and my family, including uh, what I have been told is clear witness tampering and obstruction of justice. However, when these documents were presented to the state, to the attorney general, Concord police were immediately severed from my case and told that they would not accept anything of my story or my file. Um, so when the state later announced a settlement agreement with St. Paul's School, I was not a part of that. My story was not included. Uh, there were no indictments, um, not even any slaps on the wrist for any of the, the men who had been involved in the silencing of me. And I realized that was, I was in my early 40s when that happened. In 2018 was when the settlement was announced. And, um, you know, they had silenced me once when I was 15, 16 years old, and they were trying to do it again. And I thought, you know, the hell you do. Not this time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a writer. So I wrote it. I wrote this memoir. So it is um, not really the story of a sexual assault. It is very much the story of how institutions conspire to make sure that sexual assaults never force them to change and that a victim's story can never be allowed to matter. I got very lucky uh, seeing the documents that I did. Um, most people never do. And I wish that I could show every survivor her file. I really mm -hmm. do. Um, mm -hmm you know, actual or metaphorical, because we weren't wrong. Hmm. <laughs> I'm say we weren't wrong. You have said that seeing that um, in writing really impacted you and validated for you that all your memories were, were accurate. Well, absolutely, because, you know, there, anyone who has gone through this to any extent will know that um, you question your own memories, I think, mm -hmm. and other people question not necessarily the details of what you're telling them, but the impact of those details. Mm -hmm. There's there mm -hmm. a lot of like, yeah, but was it really, is it that bad? Was it that? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it really was that bad. And I think mm -hmm. for me to see what men who were, I mean, grown men, some of them priests, um, all of them educators, right? Except for the, the attorneys, of course, the way they got together in rooms where I was not present and, mm -hmm. and conspired to make my story go go away to, mm -hmm. to retell my story they announced to the police that it was consensual they suggested that i had given herpes to the boys which is i mean it's not physically impossible because few things are physically impossible but it would be an olympic mm -hmm. an olympic feat certainly mm -hmm. but, you know I, most of the like infectious diseases specialists i've talked to were like yeah no mm -mm. yeah no uh, so, <laughs> um, so they you know seeing that also with the eyes of a parent, frankly, mm -hmm. and realizing how young a 15-year-old really is and what our obligation is to every child as an adult, uh, it enraged me, but it was a kind of useful rage. And I think it was really the first time I was able to walk with that girl. I, I really, after it happened to me, I didn't want to be that girl anymore. You know, I didn't want to be the girl that had happened to. I didn't want to be the girl whose throat was bleeding. I didn't want to be the girl who was causing all this trouble, who had a, you know, police reports. No, I, I, I didn't want any of that. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get into the Ivy League. I wanted to, I don't know, I was maybe going to be a brain surgeon. I, I had some thoughts and, and I, I abandoned her. 
I abandoned her. And when I saw these documents, I thought, no, no, you know, we're, we're going to go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get her. I am so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. I cannot believe how you were able to transport me back in time to those years. And in reading this book, I, I felt I was reliving that experience with you. I cannot overstate or overemphasize the impact it had on me. I, I had my heart beating in my ears with anger for you. And then I had this these beautiful feelings. You reminded me of the complexity of being a 15-year-old girl. And I'd, I, I think I'd, I'd forgotten that. Um, you, you also um, showed me beautiful things, reminded me of beautiful things about what feels like this sort of mystical time in my life. You said early in your book that you really struggled with finding the right words for what had happened to you. And will you tell us how you were affected by not having the words for it and what you, kind of the words you've come to, to, to describe what happened? You know, this is actually not something I've talked about yet in interviews. Um, and I'm, I mean, I've talked about language and the use of language, but in particular, this question and the way you've shaped it. So I did not know that what happened had ha had happened to me was called sexual assault until my pediatrician said that's what it was when the summer I was 16. So this was about six, seven months after the assault when my mom took me to my pediatrician. That was the first time I'd heard that word um, because the word the boys used was threesome. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't know. I'm hoping that as a result of Me Too and various other, you know, sort of comings to awareness that, that girls and women now will actually have use of the criminal justice terms that apply to the things that are being done or might be done to them. Um, but, but more complicated than that, I did not understand that it was aggravated felonious sexual assault until a police detective sent me those 1990 definitions in an email in 2017. Gosh. And again, I cried, you know, because had I known, had I been able to hang on to that, because I couldn't defend myself. I, I didn't believe that the world I lived in, my tiny little world, would stand up for me. And I was right by the way. I was right. And these words are tools. They're really important tools to have because they people have to listen to them, right? They, they imply um, a, a, a legislative response or, a, you know, a, a criminal justice response that must be listened to. So um, the word rape, however, I did not give myself. And here's why. I... Um, had never had intercourse on the night that I was in the boys' room. I did not go to their room anticipating anything uh, that would have to do with my body. I was tricked uh, into going to their room. I thought it was just one person who needed help. He was in my math class. I didn't understand. Um, when they tried to, when they pushed me down and they were sort of kneading my breasts in a way that was very painful, there were two of them, they had no clothes on. I was completely dressed, you know, the way we did in New Hampshire. I had like, you know, three sweaters and blue jeans and sneakers. And I mean, it was, um, and I didn't understand what was happening. And so I, I, they unzipped my jeans and I, I shot my hand down there and I said, just, I, I cupped myself and I said, just don't have sex with me because the only thing I knew was if they didn't have sex with me, then I wouldn't get pregnant and I probably wouldn't get AIDS. And, and that was the extent of my, you know, awareness of, mm -hmm. you know, the boundaries and yeah. the dangers to my own body. Right. And that, even that was as a result of a health class I had taken in high school. I don't think I would have known that otherwise, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and so they, they, you know, excuse me, they fucked my throat instead. I, you can edit that out if you know. No, that's, that's what my, happened. That's my word. I, I use that word now. Um, that's what no, happened. Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, each of them, one at a time, and uh, in ways that made it difficult to breathe. Anyway, so um, I reserved the word rape because I thought that was the thing that they didn't do to me. And the school said that I had very clearly given the boys consent because I had said, just don't have sex with me, and they didn't. So, um, I was told, look, you know, you didn't, I, I and it's like, no, I, I also didn't say, please don't rape my throat. I, sorry, I left that off the list, you know, but uh, like I did, you know, it wasn't, um, so, so the, the question of words for me felt like a, another trap 
all along. And when I sold the manuscript of this memoir, it was in almost final form. And my incredible editor, who, by the way, also went to boarding school, not St. Paul's, uh, was very much an outsider there, um, was sort of, you know, rocked and riveted by being reminded of what it was like. Uh, it's not her, her life now. Her children are not there. Um, she said, can I ask why you don't refer to what happened to you as rape? And I spent like 20 minutes giving her this really legit intellectual explanation for that, that I am reserving that space for other survivors for whom things were worse. And there's so many. I am reserving that space for women who, who use that word to describe their own assault. I It wasn't that bad. Look at what I got away with. And she was like, uh-huh. Okay. So this is actually what rape means. And she sent me some definitions and I, I started to cry mm. because it, this woman who had read my book and bought my book and was going to put my book into the world said, you can use the word rape. Mm. I, I was 43, Libby, Gosh. you know, Gosh. I was 43. Yes. Right. And, and how many of my friends will not use that word to describe the thing that happened that night in college when they woke up with no clothes on and there was the condom and like how many of them won't use that word? Um, because I think, you know, we tried to hold at bay the reality of what happened and words are really, really powerful. Yes. Gosh, they are. Gosh. Uh, it's amazing that you were 43 when you really, when you recently had that. Yeah. Realization. Mm. Um, on another quote from not this is an actual quote from your book. Um, early on, you said a little known fact about little known fact about victims. They can tell whether you believe them by which term you use when you ask what happened to them. Yeah, is that something you have felt repeatedly that somebody wasn't believing you? Absolutely. I mean, there's a skepticism that comes through loud and clear. So it's, you know, can you please describe to me what went on in that room? You know, can you tell me the events of the evening? Can you, and a lot of this is just, you know, sort of detective speak, I suppose, but it sounds to me like it comes out of bad movies because, you know, the true sort of victim-centered detective who ultimately did interview me said, will you just tell me what happened? You know, and I was like, oh, yeah, I would absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. So so to even open up that space um, and I can tell, you know, there are uh, some women in some cases who don't really believe uh, that what happened was exactly the way I say. And they'll say, gosh, I'm so sorry that was your experience. Gosh. I'm so sorry that was your experience, such that my experience is apparently different than reality, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's some other objective truth out there that I'm not accessing, uh, which again keeps the victim in the role of the one who is somehow responsible. Mm -hmm. um, and it is subtle, but it is so glaring. And I find it almost impossible to be in conversation with people who approach that way. Uh, of course, to not be believed. Um you you found out that a varsity sports coach had told some of the members of this of this team before you knew what your exact diagnosis was you thought you were just having sore throats the school knew and it was announced to this team that anyone that had intimate relations with Lacey Crawford needed to go to the infirmary to get checked out it's really unimaginable. And I almost threw my book across the room when I read this. Can you describe the shame that that led to? Yeah, I mean, that was the most damaging, I think. And I'm sorry, because it's a reflection of our society that that is the most damaging. Because by the way, like something like 70% of US adults in a certain age bracket and demographic have been exposed to the, you know, HSP. Sure. Right. It has to be I mean, one and two. Yeah, and we, all, everywhere. we all need to take care of each other. It's a virus. Yeah. It's a tiny little piece of genetic material. But of course, it gets loaded with this morality, right, or immorality. And um, I mean, you know, AIDS, HIV, AIDS is the grand example of how this is done, right? How we use an illness to continue the subjugation of a marginalized population. But what um, 
I didn't know that that was going on. So I, I, as I said, went to the infirmary at school. They told me I had strep throat. They told me I didn't have strep throat. They told me I had canker sores. I was like, yeah, but I don't have any sores. Like you can't see anything. So that's obviously, you know, that's not, um, and, uh, and they did not tell me they did record in my files. I later got a hold of those medical records. That's how I know this, uh, that they knew what I had had. Um, however, when I left school and I left early that year because I told my mom and she flew me home, um, I left campus, but everyone else was still on campus for about another 10 days, I think. And, um, and during that time I would later find out, um, I don't know exactly who it was. I wasn't there. Various things have been reported to me. I have to be careful about naming people if I can't substantiate. Um, but there were adults in positions of power over athletic teams and also the student body who said to at least some of the members of the senior lacrosse team, if you've ever been intimate with Lacey Crawford, you need to go to the infirmary to get checked out. Now, I didn't know this until I got a phone call at home in Lake Forest, which is the suburb I grew up in outside of Chicago, from an old friend of mine from grade school who didn't even go to my boarding school who said, oh, my God, you know, I heard something happened at St. Paul's. What happened? I said, nothing happened. Everything's fine. And she said, no, but you came home early. You're, you're sick. There's like an STD. And I just I hung up on her. I, our friendship ended. That was it. I, I could not believe. And, and I put that out of my head. And then, you know, I got back to campus and everybody knew. Um, and I, I had only just found out myself. So I, I didn't tell anybody, my parents didn't tell anybody and I still didn't work out how this had happened. I, I, until a couple of guys on the teams were like, yeah, this is, this is what they did. And that followed me Libby. I, I mean, the college I went to was in many ways, a larger sort of manifestation of this very tiny, you know, New England educational community. And there were a lot of people there who had been to St. Paul's or new people who had been to St. Paul's. And so people I did not know would pop up and say, oh, that's the one with herpes. I mean, it was devastating to me because I could never... I could never talk about that. I could never say, well, yes, but it's in the hypopharyngeal space and you can't get it from me. And this is how I got it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know how to speak to any of that. I was diseased, you know, I was a pariah and it, and it took years. I mean, it took years. And truly when I met, I mean, every serious boyfriend, I, I was like, look, I have this obligation to tell you. And that's not a great way to right. start a relationship. <laughs> right. But, um, and, you know, when I met my husband, he's a physician. And, and so I told him sort of on our third date or something. And, um, and he was puzzled. And he said, do you, you know, I mean, he was obviously rocked by what I had told him. It happened to me. But he said, do you, you know, do you need a script for acyclovir? Like, are you good? I, like, he, he didn't seem to get, there was no morality attached to it or fear at all. Mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. um, it was just a thing. It was like, I told him I had a headache and he offered me some Excedrin. I was like, <laughs> normal, you know, and I was like, Oh no, no, I'm good. I really do stop getting outbreaks after about 12 years. And he was like, okay. Like, you know, so that was, um, it was, it was healing, but the shaming of that. And of course the school knew exactly what they were doing. They were laying a trail to try to prove that I had given it to other people, right. Rather than the other way around, because we had them on the ropes. We didn't know that then, but we had them on the ropes. If someone had been there for you that night. Yeah either a teacher or a fellow student. And now with your perspective now as an adult, what would that conversation have been like? Or what, what do you wish a conversation could have been like for you? Yeah, I've thought about this so much because the problem is that I was in an institution that would not support me. So I don't know that there was any individual who could have changed that, even if the headmaster, the rector, who was at that point an older male priest, who I guarantee you did not have the awareness to handle this sort of issue sensitively, uh, however kind he might have been in other arenas, even if he had had my back completely, he had a board of trustees you know, who would have said, hell no, you know, pay off her family, do whatever it takes, but we're not going to do the right thing. And I know that because the board of trustees didn't do the right thing. So I've often thought, you know, I have dear friends who were, who were assaulted at the school. And, um, a couple of us have, 
in various social media contexts, been joking about putting together an older, like female alumni rapid response team. So, you know, if you're 15 and you're trapped in your dorm and someone does this to you, rather than, you know, try to go to sleep or write in your journal or, you know, whatever, if you ping the female alumni rapid response team and we show up at breakfast the next morning (laughs) and we walk with you and we go up to your rapist and we're like, dude's not cool. You raped her. That's illegal. The police will be here soon. You know, I mean, I would have needed an army. I would have needed an army and I would have needed them, frankly, to be out ahead of me in terms of understanding the gravity of what had been done to me, because it took me a very long time to understand that. So, I mean, that's maybe more a fantasy of who I could be now, right. Mm -hmm. Than, than who I needed then. Um, All of which is to say that I think if we are rooted in unhealthy institutions, there is no individual Mm -hmm. who can change that. Along those lines, do you have advice for in- institutions about how to approach necessary systemic and cultural change around issues of abuse and abuse of power? Yeah, small question. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> you know, the work the work I think begins with understanding the um, sorts of people these institutions were founded for and were intended to serve and to protect. So in the instance of St. Paul's school, it was founded for a very small slice of blue blooded American boys who were not to be educated with Jews, you know, or the only other white people they might've been educated with at that time in their lives or Catholics, by the way, um, that was how St. Paul's was founded. And, you know, that, that strain of old wasp, power has not yet been decentered on campus. So uh, to the extent to which there are larger conversations going on about investigating whiteness and investigating power hierarchies, I think we need to be, I want to be very clear that this is not, this is, does not just cut along gender lines, right? This is, Mm -hmm. these, these abuses um, are, are encouraged, are nurtured, are protected in unhealthy systems of hierarchy, unearned power, right? That often has to do with heritage rather than merit, as much as we like to say meritocracy. That said, my, I have two ideas for institutions, specifically schools. The first is that there there has sprung up a branch of sort of educational legal practice that works with institutions on the claims from sexual assault on their campuses. Every college has to have this, you know, certainly residential schools, school districts, public school districts, these attorneys who manage this. And what was intended to be a remedy has become a kind of industry. Uh, We'll help you defend against these cases. We know how to work with your institutional insurer, you know, to make sure that the claims get paid out. So so these are really um, just, you know, line items on an annual budget is $8 million in payouts, some of which will have NDAs attached attached to them, a non-disclosure agreement, right? So the victim never talks about it again. And this is just bullshit. I mean, this is, this is not, I understand we live in a litigious society and an institution has to protect its assets. I get that. However, however, I think we need to be seriously considering other models of reconciliation and remedy. And along those lines, um, and I'm saying this as someone who never sued. I never brought a lawsuit. I didn't ask anyone for money. Um, You know, I I owe my parents a lot for therapy. Like St. Paul could cut them a nice check for how many years of like, why is our daughter failing to launch? What's going on? You know, Um, but here's the thing, you know, we treat especially in in institutions that pride themselves on reputation and respect and uh, righteousness. So a a church school or a prominent boarding school or branches of the military or a church diocese or a synagogue or, you know, any of these closed systems where these things can thrive. We pretend that the revelation of the assault is the shameful thing. Okay. Not the assault, but the telling of the assault is the thing that's, oh, this is hard. This is, you know, that's just when everything gets all murky. And if we could somehow realize that we're human beings and there will be aggressors and there will be victims and that is going to happen. And therefore what we value is the quality of the revelation, is the quality of transparency, that the shame adheres to the act and not the telling of the act. And and I don't know exactly what that would look like in sort of institutional terms, but it has, you know, here's my example is that 
Chessie Prout, who was uh, sexually assaulted by a senior at our boarding school. She was a freshman that night. She went straight to the hospital for her, you know, rape test. She was accompanied by a police detective and also someone from a crisis center. And she was like, you know, this is not okay. I mean, she had the courage to do that at the age of 15. She wanted to stay. That was her school. She had her friends. She had her team. Her older sister was there. Her dad had gone there. And she tried. She tried to stay there while her rapist was being tried and eventually convicted on three misdemeanor charges and sentenced to a year in prison. And she couldn't stay because the community had turned against her. So what I have said to St. Paul's School is when you get this right, it is not that no one will ever assault anyone again, but the victim will stay, will graduate, will be held and supported, and does not lose her community. That's what it will look like. Oh, it's a beautiful thing to think of the victim being held and supported and not isolated. Right. You know, I've had as I mentioned, many talks with my formates from my high school class about this very conversation I was going to have with you. It's been a great way to connect with these old, wonderful friends. And one of them mentioned the Canada goose analogy, where when a Canada goose gets sick and has to land, that several geese will drop out of formation and land with it. And be there for right. it and wait. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we could act like more like geese and not, you know, abandon these victims of assault as people, as happens all over the nation, um, and frankly, all over the world. Um, and instead, you know, be there with that, with that sick goose, so to speak, which reminds me of the, the goose in your book. The analogy is, it's incredible. Yeah. Yes, right? I had forgotten about that goose. I had to until I wrote it. I I run this women a women's group that I've absolutely had it's been a um kind of a labor of love and a major hobby and major part of my life. And we actually we had a sexual assault night a year and a half ago and we had about 50 women get together and we I handed out an anonymous survey as we started and this this was a group of the usual suspects, which are highly educated, highly successful women in our community, many of them physician, about 50-50 physician, and then others are lawyers, mm-hmm. business persons, et cetera. Um, and I was shocked to find the results of that survey, which we actually, I tallied it up and we talked about it that night. We had, um, we had 17% of the people had been raped, um, 17 had been sexually abused, 28% had been assaulted. And then in terms of sexual harassment, it was just rampant. I mean, it was, over, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty much everybody. Um, um, but the numbers were, and this was, you know, this was just the usual suspects, the usual people that have been very supportive of my group and attended. This wasn't just, oh, the women that want to talk about sexual yeah. assault. Sure, they showed up. This was just, this was our my usual group. I, I, I feel yeah. like I have to, here I am trying to prove to you (laughs) that it's rampant. It's absurd that I'm actually having to clarify that, but I've felt inclined to do so. Um, And, you know, it was that night and this was a right at me too, essentially um, right around um, as me too was really taking hold. And that was the first night I, and I'm going to share what happened, something that two things that happened to me in very vague terms with you, but you know, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm sharing this because I, the, the power that it had over me without sharing it, um, or really had an effect on me once I was able to talk about it, it really helped me. And so I'm sharing it as an example to others. So I had, uh, one incident happened to me when I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from college and I was abroad and, it was if there's also there's another reason I'm sharing this too, but it was at a family gathering where um, I was taken and I was uh, tricked into going into this pool house with two men that were much older who had wives at the party, oh, and um, it was um, it, it it was awful. Um, I told my friends at the time who were very supportive. I told my boyfriend when he met us abroad, and he almost broke his hand because he hit a wall so many times so hard. And, you know, it was something about nearly having that broken hand and, 
and that really helped me. I don't know. It, yeah. it just that 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 helped me. This battered and bruised arm. He I remember I could he couldn't use it for a while while we were traveling across Europe. And then um it also I think it helped me that my age and and here I feel like I'm doing this comparative suffering thing well, with you. Yeah, like well, my experience was not that big of a deal, but you know, I that th- it is different. 22 and 15 is just different. And then the other time was the next year I was now 23. I was um already in med school. And I, or excuse me, right before I started med school. Um, and I, it was by a friend. It was by a friend and it was in a, a hotel room. And um, one thing led to another. No alcohol was involved in this, in this situation. Um, and again, my friends were very supportive. But, you know, I didn't tell my husband the details of either of those incidences until, until me too. I was over the age of 40. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be able to then talk about it, it definitely, there was some release I had of its hold, hold over me. Um, that was really helpful. And I just want to share to our, you know, listeners that I, I think talking about it is very helpful. Um, clearly, if you feel that you need to be in the, in the presence of, you know, a therapist or a counselor, I mean, I can't say that enough. Um, or you're just your physician. Um, you know, I say that I, I have people come out to me um, with things like this, um, of course, intermittently. Um, I would like to. Um, I th- I would like to address how your parenting has been affected. I know, as an example, for me, my parenting. So my jo- my children are 13, 11, and nine girls, and then twin boys that are seven. And I I seem to find myself wanting to prepare my daughters in particular for something like this happening to them, almost like I want to prepare them for when it happens and not just trying to prevent it from happening, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because of the two incidents I've described, who would have thought you're at a party with people and their wives are present in one and then a friend in the other. Has that um, this is a very rambling question. You just went to where I was going to go. I I, I was waiting to see... You 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 offered your experiences and then you moved on from them quickly. And so what I'm tracking is, does she wish to to dwell on those at all or not? And what I'm hoping is, gosh, I hope she's not moving on because she's worried they're not as bad as mine or something. So, so the thing about the comparative register, this is so important, I think, is that you, when you're experiencing it, aren't comparing yourself to your 15-year-old self or to my 15-year-old self. You are living your ordinary life, being Libby. And as you said, you know, and those were the two details that struck me. Their wives were at the party. He was a friend. This is the thing that is so astonishing. So never mind what the boys did to my body. The first breach was of my understanding of what was possible in the world, right? Like I was a, a, a good girl and a girl who understood social mor- mores and I followed them and I it never occurred to me. I mean, it's like you're sitting there watching a romantic comedy and suddenly someone comes in and stabs the lady on screen and you're like, this is not a horror film. Like, but it's a horror film. Like it becomes, like it's a genre change. I'm a writer, so, so for me that word is useful, but you are in an entirely different story and you don't have a lot of time to figure out what that means. And you cannot, I think so much of the crisis of reintegrating that experience into your life is that you then are back in the daylight talking to your friends and you can't really, you can tell them who put what where if you want to, but that doesn't capture the experience of the like, what? Like, like mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it's the, you know, it's that the fact that suddenly something is being done to you and that you and your wishes are no longer relevant. You, it is a kind of specific annihilation. It's a kind of micro annihilation of self. And that is, I think the first and in some ways the deepest trauma. So, so I think, you know, for me, I've thought about that a lot. And when I was thinking about telling this story and writing it, one of the things, you know, I could have gone to the media, right? I have a lot of documentation. I could have sued, I have a lot of documentation. I could be doing this Zoom chat from a private island, like if I had, you know, shown samples what I had, right? So uh, neither of those struck me as remedies because what's important to me is helping people to understand 
so that they can help us. What is taken from you? The way the earth shifts off its axis, no matter how little it is, you know, what is that's actually done to you or what you're able to get away, you know, without them doing to you. But so with regard to my children, you know, I don't have a daughter. I have three sons. Um, If anyone would like to transition, he or she is more than welcome. But for now, I I appear to have three boys. Um, And, you know, so it's, it's slightly different in some ways. I wish it weren't the case. It is. I will say that for girls and for the girls who are dear to me in my life, over and over to say to them, you are never, not ever responsible for the choices that a man makes or for anything that he does to you. There is nothing you can wear that will make it your fault if he rapes you. You shouldn't walk down the street naked for a whole lot of reasons, but if you did, you know, it would not be your fault if he chose to do something to you. And this is the thing I cannot, I don't understand the illogic of this, but but we see a world where the great majority of people in leadership roles, at least certainly in this nation, are men in almost every sector. They are awarded and afforded the power. And yet, when they do something abusive to women, we made that happen. We did that. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're the only ones who can be Marines and fly the fighter jets and be president. But, you know, if they stick their dick down my throat, I do that part. Like, how, like, you know, the guy was a foot taller than I was, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. this, this, that's like, if I had had that kind of power, I trust me, you would have heard about me. I would be getting stuff done. Right. So, so th- it is never their fault what they choose to do. That doesn't mean be reckless. That doesn't mean be blind to the fact that we are human beings and society is complicated. But what that does mean is if, and when something happens to them, they say, Oh, hell no. You know, and maybe they don't feel brave enough to fight back because they're going to get hurt. But they come to you and they say, "He did this to me. Mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. Gosh, to I love me. that, right? So I love that. With regard to my boys, the eldest is ten. We have so many conversations about bodies, who touches where, when, how, and with boys, it's like, you know, cutting your nails and like, did you wash your face? You know? And like, is it time to talk to him about deodorant yet? And how do we do that? But you know, it's like, these are very ordinary questions because we haven't really talked about them in the context of male, female or male, male or female, female sexual relationships yet. Um, but I, I need them to understand that consent is not even really the thing we're going for here. I mean, of course it is. That's the, but consent is like the baseline, you know, consent is where we start. What Mm -hmm. we want is, is desire on top of consent. What we want is you, because I think there are a lot of women, you know, I got this beautiful email from a woman Libby who was a year ahead of me, um, who in my eyes in high school was perfect. I mean, perfect. And, um, and she wrote to me and shared her experience of assault. I was floored, you know, how could I not know, but I didn't know. And she said, I have bargained so many boys off of me at night. And I thought, God, you know, she's writing now from the context of a, of a loving marriage and a family, you know, but, but I thought that is exactly right. We bargain away the boy, you know, we try to, we, we have this sense of obligation and I'm going to, you know, I, I just have to figure out what to do to get you to leave me alone. Um, and so what I, I don't want my boys to grow up with this really hackneyed sense that romance somehow means that they have to be pursuing the objects of their affection. That that's not that's not how this will work. Um, I mean, get back to me in five years, you know. But this, this is- <laughs> I um, I took verbatim something that you said on. Um, Lacey was involved in a webinar on a couple of few nights ago um, with St. Paul's, the rector of St. Paul's, and you said something that was so beautiful about um, what you've told your boys that, um, and you can just repeat it about. Um, how you should feel good when you're around somebody. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. So, so that, that little commentary. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the other thing is, and, and what did, what do I wish that I had known when I was 15? And, and that yeah. is that I, I am a reliable witness to my own experience. 
violence, that if something feels violent to me, there was violence in it. That doesn't mean I'm a tape recorder. I'm a human being. I understand reality. But um, my experience of a thing is, I'm sorry, is clinical evidence. It's a fact. It's not the only evidence, you know, but it's clinical evidence and, and it needs to be considered in that way, in that context. And, and that's true about every relationship that we have. And so if I am with someone else, you know, and I feel good about who I am when I'm with that person, that's really, really important information. And that is not, that was not my North Star you know, when I was dating or when I, you know, I mean, it was, I might've been attracted to someone or I thought that, you know, being in his world would afford me certain things that were very important that would soothe areas that felt insecure, uncertain, or unprotected. A lot of it was defense mechanisms. A lot of it was anger. Very rarely was pleasure. And I, and I don't even mean sexual pleasure, erotic pleasure, but just, I like being with you. I like talking to you. I like being with you. And does this other person like being with me? I mean, that's really, mm -hmm. that's where it begins. Right. And, and then if we move forward to share other aspects of ourselves, including our bodies, then great. Right. But, mm -hmm. but it, it begins with that. And I don't think when kids start to date, I don't think that's what they're thinking. You know, do I Right. It's not about popularity. Right, it's not right. about, I feel, I feel more popular with yeah. you now that you're paying or, and same thing with, 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 you know, I have a 13 year old girl and with friends, it's like, no, don't be around someone. Cause that's the cool group. Be around someone because they make you feel good. Oh, of course. I mean, the, they the make friends, you feel good yes. about yourself. I mean, or you have yeah. a, you know, the, the friend you have a phone conversation with and you love her, but every time you hang up, you're depressed for like six hours, <laughs> you know? And I talk to my husband and I'm like, she said this, is that weird? And he's like, babe, why do we do this every six months? Do we have to do this? Like, we're going to be 50. Why don't we just not do that? You know? so, oh, right. I mean, it's, yes. that's a fact. Yes. That feeling is real yeah. for whatever reason it's happening. Yeah. Right. Okay. Another personal question. Um, you do them very well. <laughs> um, how do you think that your experience as a 15 year old virgin went on and you outline in this books a lot, how did it affect your sexual experience and experiences in the, in the, in the ensuing years. Right. So I, um, I got rid of my virginity as quickly as I could after that assault, because there were people saying they were going to take it from me. And I felt that they were mocking me. They were mocking the idea that there was something precious left in me because I was pretty sure there wasn't. And I joined them basically in my self-destruction because that felt, you know, like if you can't beat them, join them. Right. I mean, I was like, all right, fine. If this is the, the way the world is, let's do this because I, you know, and this is me talking when I'm 15, but I was like, I'm really smart. I'm, I'm smarter than you are actually. And I'm really capable and I can do this. And it was hugely self-delusional, but I understand completely the coordinates. I know how I got there. So for me, pleasure was never, I mean, never, I don't, I, I hated men. Um, I wouldn't have told you that. I didn't think that was true because I've always been attracted to the male body, but I hated men. I didn't respect men. Um, and I was pretty sure that they existed only to prey on girls and women. And, um, I, Ended up, you know, in my 20s, I spent eight years in my 20s in an emotionally abusive relationship with someone who had a very big, cool, sexy job. He was a network news correspondent for a major news organization. He was always embedded with the troops and covering the wars. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have a front row seat to history here. And um, and he'd gone to the kind of schools that my parents were impressed by. And, um, and I was too, uh, you know, and um, he was you know, he was a pathological liar. Uh, and there were, there was a woman in every port and a couple of them also thought they were engaged to him, not just me. And, you know, it was, um, it was really horrible, but you know, I, I spent eight years in that and I'm a pretty bright girl. So it's pretty clear that I was using it as a defense against something that was even scarier than the thought of this horrible partner in my life. Um, you know, and, and the scarier thing was, I don't ever believe that I could be held ever. And I, in any way. And so as long as I'm with this guy, it's never going to happen. I don't have to worry about it. And aren't we great? You know? So it, it took some pretty serious therapy, um, 
And by serious, I mean like five days a week therapy for a while there to come to a place where I could reimagine what it might feel like to just feel good in the presence of another human being, um, a man in that way. Right. And and from there, I got to say, like, this is pretty intimate, but I know you Libby, it's a challenge. Sometimes it's a challenge. And, you know, sometimes the one you love the most, you want to protect from things that are painful to you. So, um, I find it difficult to navigate that sometimes. Oh gosh. I, um, I appreciate your, your sharing all of this. Um, one thing you also alluded to in the book was your adult relationship with your parents. And I would love for you to add to that if you feel um, comfortable, you know, doing so. Yeah. So my parents, um, my parents grew up in a certain way, uh, in a certain time, in certain communities. They were in various ways not supported by their own parents. My mom had a catastrophic childhood um, and was really on her own, basically, um, if not worse. And my dad uh, had these baby boomer parents who provided but didn't cherish. I, I, I don't know how else to put it. They, they were... Um, uh, upstanding citizens, but you know, that's not who you go to for a hug. Um, and so, uh, I think their sense of the world was one of precarity, even though they had ample resources, educational and otherwise. Um, and it really, really mattered how they came across in their community. That was of heightened utmost importance. In addition, my mom is a priest. She's an Episcopal priest. And so uh, we were not only the family that was, you know, in church every Sunday morning and I was in the choir, but my mom was a priest up there, you know, and my dad was on the board of every charity and he was the head of the board of trustees at the school and he coached the soccer team. And my brother and I were always, you know, perfectly put together and there were very serious expectations for how we would perform. And that was simply what people did. That was just what we were raised to think people did. And there was no way that I could fit what had happened to me into that understanding of the world, that context. It it simply could not be made to fit. And at the same time, you know, I wasn't living in a world that would understand what had happened to me, except to be like, oh, she always was a little bit, that one, you know, like so bright, but really sensitive. So, you know, made bad choices you, you know how, you know what it sounds like. And, um, and so my parents and I did not have the the resources or the vocabulary or the support, any of us as individuals to talk to each other about what happened at St. Paul's, not when I was 15, not when I was 20, not when I was 25, not when I was 30. And we have been largely estranged for about the last 10 years as a result, not of this, um, but of our inability, frankly, to share a reality around a lot of the choices that I've made and the way I see things. And um, they just see things very differently. And that's very painful Mm -hmm. for all of us. But um, they hate St. Paul's school. (laughs) They hate the school and they remain devastated by what was done to their daughter, how could they not? Because they approached everything about my education with such good faith and such energy and such hope and commitment. And uh, and they, my father uses a word in his emails to friends who write to support him. He says, yes, Lacey was raped at St. Paul's and then the school turned around and raped us. Um, I find that wording to be exceptionally problematic, um, but... I recognize that it is my father trying to express the depth of what was done to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Gosh, Lacey. Um, yet another thing I wanted to mention that was, I've not heard someone go into this. You talked about, so the men that the pseudonyms you give them are Rick and Taz in the book. Um, and you, you talked about how their lives um, have, have been adversely affected by this as well because there was no, you know, punishment, retribution, or, or really anything, even a slap on the wrist. Um, and I would love for you to, to expand on that if you know anything else about how their lives have been adversely affected. And along those lines, have either of them reached out to you? <laughs> no. Um, but, <laughs> you know, here's, this is, a, so this is amazing. 
I, as part of the, the investigation that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversations, part of the state investigation in 2017, the police interviewed both of these boys. I call them the boys, even though they're, you know, almost 50 now, right? Um, I don't want to give them the term men. I don't know that for me, at least they've earned that, but, um, but they did not deny um, the events of that night. They claimed it was consensual, but they did not deny it. So, um, so I knew a bit that I wasn't going to be challenged on this because they, once that was done, they couldn't say it didn't happen. There's no claim for them to make. And, um, and I, I Googled them for the first time. I had never done that. I've never tracked them. In fact, I wasn't on Facebook for years in part because I was scared I would run into any of these people. Right. And, um, and I would never look them up, but one of them I was told had a lengthy relationship to, I mean, the detectives are very vague, you know, and very professional and boundaried, but she said, you know, he, he is not unknown to local law enforcement or something like that was like the way it was phrased. And I Mm -hmm. thought, oh, my God, you know, and I and I looked up that one. And and so, um, you know, there were two men that night. Um, One of them was a man of color. One of them was not. It won't surprise you to hear which one has been in and out of jail for the last 25 years. When I say that, what I mean is that this society did not afford him after chance, after chance, after chance, the way it has afforded the other one who, by the way, I have now been told pulled a knife on a classmate as a sophomore in North in the dorm. Uh, The man who, who had the knife pulled to his throat and, and, you know, the guy I call Rick said, I will cut you. He was terrified to report it. And he wrote to me and said, I'm so sorry I didn't because maybe it wouldn't have, you know, he wouldn't have done this to you. And I said, on the contrary, he might've doubled down, you know, who knows, but he also, um, two other women have told me he assaulted them though, not quite to the same degree. Everyone's busy rating, (laughs) rate your rape, you know, in order to take care of your friends. Right. Um, and, uh, and then he showed up at our, at his 25th class reunion with a gun that he showed off around the rectory, which is, you know, a parish house and, uh, and various other things. These have all been reported to Concord police now. Um, because I asked, I said, thank you for telling me. And now if you'd be kind enough to tell the following people. So, Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't ended. Ended, and I think my sense of them is that one of them is truly um, angrier and more of a predator than the other. I suspect that one of them was did not have the resources or the support that he needed to be at St. Paul School in the first place. I can't imagine what it was like to be a not white student, frankly. at that school in the 1990s, of course, I can't imagine, but I didn't try to imagine when I was there because I was white and why would I think about that, right? And so um, I, I believe that had this school understood what it meant to help guide young people, they would have understood that talking to the boys was not only about doing right by me, but about doing right by them. And I, I love that you can you can talk about that and you can talk about it here and now and you can, your heart, you know, goes out to them a little and boys like them, not maybe, that maybe not maybe an overstatement. (laughs) Your heart might not go out to them. You can hold them in your, We were kids and and I'm I'm working on this theory that that young people act out um, what is held in contempt in dysfunctional societies. So Mm -hmm. if you are not supposed to do X, Y, Z, you know, the young people are going to find a way to, to apportion shame. That's what they're going to do. And the people who are less able to carry it are going to dump it on the shoulders of the people who can. Um, And this is why the people who are marginalized, who already have developed extraordinary resources, you know, for survival end up having to carry so much of this crap. I truly believe it. I think, I think the ones who are at the top of the hierarchy are more brittle to begin with. I really, uh, do you think there was anything different about the particular period where, when you were in high school um, or perhaps the particular group of students that made the culture that you described especially toxic? So if that's a question relative to other eras at St. Paul's School, the answer is no. Now, I might mm-hmm. have thought that possible before, but I've heard from survivors from every era so men in the 60s, Libby, were being brought to New York by a professor, a teacher, to 
sleep with prostitutes. Okay. Um, like it was the, the, the dysfunction, the pathology is so deep. And this was before the school was even co-ed. Um, I have heard, I know that when Chessie Prout was assaulted on campus, you know, the senior salute, the sixth form salute was a very big deal. So before a senior boy left campus, he would have sex with as many freshman girls as he could. That wasn't, that didn't exist when we were there. I don't think it did. I think I would have. No. So, I mean, and it's overt that, that it is overtly misogynistic in a way that, that frankly shocked me. And I've heard from other students more recently and from their parents, frankly, who pulled them. They pulled them um, because what goes on, there is, a, there is a culture of entitlement and of enchantment and of sort of self-important mythology that obtains on that campus. And so many of those students come in never really having had any rules and they get there and they still pretty much don't. So I know the school would disagree with that, but there's a difference between policy and practice, right? And, and that's where the devil lies. So I I definitely think the school's culture has consistently been challenging for things like personal responsibility and compassion and kindness and not raping. But I think in some ways it's almost crueler now than it was then. Would you, um, would you speak to the, the list? Um, you, you mentioned you were keeping a list of all the alumni that had contacted you in a little journal. Yeah. So I have a little, I have this little journal that I just, it's, it's not even like a diary. It's just a like, oh my God, this happened today. You know, just so I can kind of remember. And part of that is because when I was writing this book, people said, did you record it? You know, can you photocopy that? That's a fact checking. So yes, anyone can fact check me ever again and I'm going to be ready. But um, I started writing down the names of people who had written to me after a, an excerpt of this book went live on Vanity Fair and, and they were coming in, they were flooding in from everywhere. And I wanted to write back to everyone because in many cases, these were people I knew. And, and I wanted to make sure that I, I told them how much it meant to hear from them. Um, I was floored. I mean, I didn't think, I thought these people hated me, you know, maybe they did then, but you know, they, they, we've all grown up and here we are and they're writing these beautiful notes. And, and so I was just keeping a list to make sure I didn't miss anybody. Uh, and then that list became, it's page after page. Um, and, and I have it divided into St. Paul's and then other, you know, and, and it's hundreds of people at this point. And I put a little check mark by the name if they tell me a story of their own assault on campus. And if they tell me a story of someone else's assault, like their best friend or their roommate or the sister or their child, I put the check mark in parentheses by their name. So I've actually devised a little taxonomy, right, of assault from people who have written to me in the last three weeks or something. And the numbers from St. Paul's as of this morning are 78 alumni, in addition to the ones I already knew, right, who um, have written to me um, expressions of support, and 28 of them have revealed their own assaults, um, not always sexual, but usually while they were students at St. Paul's School. So that's a third. That's a third. Gosh, gosh. Are there any questions um, that you would like to ask Mr. Matthews or any other <laughs> members of the administration? And I understand you've really just had Rector Giles has been the only one to from the administration. I, mean, I think you mentioned one trustee or something, but in terms of from the administration, one has just been Rector Giles has reached out to you and that's all. Yeah. So as of Monday, I had heard only from the rector the, and she's been there for a year, right? Right. First yeah. woman. So, you know, none of this happened on her watch, not even close. Um, she wasn't associated with the school. She does not have ties to the school. She is not, she's one of the few people who's not culpable. Right. Um, and so she's apologized. And I said, look, you know, I, I appreciate that, but you didn't hurt me, you know, and, and the people who did are uh, pretty quiet, actually, all of them. So um, maybe they think they're going to stay out of my way. Um, Kathy Giles, the rector told me that she thinks the trustees are trying not to intrude on my privacy, which is, um, leaves me a little bit cold. Um, because I, I think, you know, if, if 76 other people can find a way to write a note that feels good, maybe at least one of them could. And if they can't, maybe they shouldn't be the trustees of a residential educational institution. I don't know. I think it's possible to find, you know, really useful board members who are also not assholes, but I probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, so I, um, in terms of Bill Matthews, you know, other people have told me stories about him now uh, that I had actually, I'd heard some of them and didn't know they were true. So I couldn't put them in my book, but I wish I had now because now I have all of these witnesses. Um, I think in many ways he was fundamentally dishonest. And I, 
I would only ask a question of him if I thought I would get a useful answer. And I'm not sure that I would, you know, I'm not sure that I would. So, um, that's not a very sexy answer to your question, but I, I, you know, there are other people I'd rather be talking to. Right. I love, I actually love that answer. So I just want you to know that um, as you were speaking during the webinar and all week, I've, I've been speaking to my group of close friends from my class and I, I am so lucky, you know, I was surrounded by a group of wonderful um you know, girls and boys mm-hmm. and at the time. And I, we, we all feel a little stupid um, that we didn't know that this had happened to you. You know, we really, and I, I, I just feel lucky that, you know, I, I didn't have to go through this. And I want just all of us want you to know that we are so impressed with you. Oh, thank you. And so, I mean, proud sounds so paternal. Like, I don't mean that, but no, I understand incredibly blown away by how eloquent and gifted and brilliant you are. And it makes me cry. (laughs) And how here you have this wonderful life and three children. You are, you're incredible. Um, And um, I, I appreciate so much. You're talking to me and, and talking about these really challenging, um, challenging things. So Thank you so much for joining no, me. No, it's it's really special for me to be able to talk with you because we were girls together. So thank you. You are. Thank you. Okay. Good luck with everything with this book. You're so busy. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Wow, guys, this eloquent, brilliant, beautiful girl turned into a woman has really overwhelmed me with this courageous memoir and strength that we have seen right here. I really hope you are able to read um, a copy of Notes on a Silencing. Undoubtedly, you're going to find some lost pieces of yourself in 15-year-old Lacey. As always, thanks to Russell Kelly for sound and music magic. And I am thinking of each and every one of you during this god-awful 2020 year. Hope to see you next time.